Good evening, everyone. Why don't we begin in a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious Father, grant us the grace to grow deeper in knowledge in you, and how you move within our hearts, and how you seek to draw us closer to your everlasting love. We ask all of this in the name of Mary as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and in the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've got to confess, after giving the Lenten mission yesterday, I, I was kind of a little nervous. I was kind of a little nervous that maybe people didn't really understand what I was talking about. Maybe this is a little over their heads. I, I kind of get a little nervous every time I present on new things about this stuff. And uh, i got to say, my... Nerves were eased whenever I walked into the sacristy today. Somebody came up to me, a man, he said, you know, uh, I was texting with my wife and she, uh, she texted me today and she said, uh, you know, I was just not feeling too good about going to this mission. I got lots of stuff to do. I got a lot of work ahead of me. I'm kind of tired. It's been a long day. And he goes, you know what I texted back? I said, what's that? Evil spirit, leave my wife alone. I'm glad someone was listening. <laughs> She's here right now, so I'm very happy about that. Praise God. <laughs> this is all working out. So just kind of as a review, in case you didn't come the first night, what we covered was this. The basis for this whole process of discernment of spirits is the simple fact that there is no neutral ground between heaven and hell. It doesn't exist. There's either heaven or there's hell. That's where we're going. There is nothing in between. Which means that God and Satan do not stand by neutrally, which means they work deep in our lives. But the common misconception, as we talked about yesterday, is that they work outside of our lives. That, you know, every car wreck, every accident, everything like that is a direct intervention of the evil one. Or a direct letting go of God, which is not necessarily true. The primary place where God and Satan work is not necessarily in the external world, which actually God gave man dominion over. But the internal world, our hearts, and that's what we're talking about, and that's why we're here tonight, to talk about discernment of spirits. But the fact of the matter is, as we mentioned yesterday, this isn't possible without silence. If we are not quiet, if we do not take the opportunity to listen to the movements in our hearts, we will never ever be able to figure out what kind of discernment is going on. Which is why it is so essential if we're really actually going to discern spirits, if we're really actually going to seek to grow in the love of God, it's so essential to pray. Pray in silence. Pray allowing the Lord to soak into our minds and allowing the Lord to speak to us and allowing us to see how the Lord is speaking to us. This is seen very, very clearly, especially the internal working within our hearts, in the life of St. Ignatius. We talked about how St. Ignatius was a warrior, a man with small man syndrome. We always needed to fight and very combative. And during a battle in Pamplonia, Spain, he was smacked in the leg by a cannonball, ridden to his castle. And it was there he discovered that whenever he daydreamed about going after a woman, he was left sad, kind of, kind of dry, kind of desolate. 
Whenever he daydreamed about things that the world doesn't really accept, like massive fasts, long pilgrimages, just like St. Francis of Assisi did, just like St. Dominic did, and so many other saints did, he felt that these things were not impossible. He felt that he can do them. And because of that, he was left consoled, joyful, happy. And that is a basis for which he developed these 14 rules of discernment. Discernment of spirits. And the purpose of these rules are to help you and I to become aware and to understand to some extent the different movements which are caused in the soul. The good movements to receive them. The bad movements to reject them. And this can be done in a threefold process. The first one, being spiritually aware. The second process, understanding what's going on, what's happening within our hearts. And the third process, take action. Accept or reject. Accept the good, reject the bad. There is no third option. Accept or reject. It makes things very, very simple. But in order to do this, in order to really, truly be aware of what is going on in our hearts, of coming to understand how God is working, what we need to do is look at these rules of discernment, these 14 rules of discernment. In case you haven't picked one up, they're at that table over there in the, in the break, but these are them right here. And what we're going to do for this session is we're going to go through at least the first four rules. If we get through fast enough, we might even get through five and six, but we're going to at least hit the first four. And the rest we'll get to tomorrow. Whatever rules we don't cover tonight, we will get to tomorrow. And then we will look into a plan to implement these in our lives so this mission doesn't kind of fizzle out and just end up being a nice memory later on. So let's begin. The first rule of the discernment of spirits of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Allow me to read. The first rule. In the persons who go from mortal sin to mortal sin, the enemy is con commonly used to propose to them apparent pleasures, making them imagine sensual delights and pleasures in order to hold them more and make them grow in their vices and sins. In these persons, the good spirit uses the opposite method, pricking them and biting their consciences through the process of reason. Pricking them and biting their consciences through the process of reason. Now what this first rule does first and foremost is it addresses a person and what direction he is going in. It addresses a person and what direction he is going in. And what he talks about is a man going from mortal sin to mortal sin. To put it simply, a guy or a girl going from mortal sin to mortal sin is a guy or girl heading not to heaven, but to hell. Someone who is under the influence of Satan. And so Satan, in seeing this work, decides to, instead, decides to just encourage him. Decides, decides to encourage. Whereas the good spirit, out of mercy and out of love, bites and pricks and stings at the person's conscience. That is how it works for somebody who is going from mortal sin to mortal sin. That is somebody who's unfocused on spiritual matters. 
Somebody who habitually misses church. Somebody who habitually and maliciously gossips. Somebody who does crimes such as stealing, such as doing lustful acts. And is unrepentant of this. Not seeking to get any better, but kind of going on autopilot with the ways of the world. Without any real discernment, without any real stopping and thinking, but rather continuing on the path to meet the evil one in his eternal lair. And that's how the evil, and the evil spirit sees this and wants to encourage this. And in order to encourage a man or a woman who's going from mortal sin to mortal sin, what he does is he plays on their imagination. He allows them to think, man, it would be really cool if I could do this thing and that thing and this thing, even though it's contrary to God's command and it's contrary to really what the world wants of us. I'm not saying the world in an evil sense, but just we as a society want to have as and have and want to grow as a society so much of sin fundamentally rips apart our society rips apart us and yet it's great i greatly ironic that we do it constantly and i'm convinced that the reason why we're so constantly sinning is because we're allowing the devil to live in our imagination we're allowing the devil to sow these goofy lies that this sin or that sin could somehow benefit us, could somehow benefit the rest of the world. And that's exactly what the devil's trying to do, is sow in us these central pleasures and form our imaginations to where we are geared on going from sin to sin. St. Augustine, as we all know, St. Augustine was a wild child in his younger days. It almost killed St. Monica, but... She never let up. She prayed for him. She said Monica was his mother. The ladies out there, if you have sons who are not doing so well, pray to St. Monica. She'll give you a hand. She knows the feeling. Trust me. He was a wild child, and he, he had no real regard for the Lord. And one of the things that he says that captures this whole person, this whole idea that we see in the first rule of a person going from mortal sin to mortal sin, under the influence of the devil... He says this, he says, in my youth, I burned to have my fill of evil things. I burned to have my fill of evil things. Now, I can assure you, if you were to talk to him as a youth, he probably wouldn't have said that. He would probably, oh, well, I just want this and I want that. I want fame and I want women and I want that. Well, whatever. But it's not until later, whenever his imagination is cleared from all this junk, that he begin, can begin to see how Satan was filling his mind with lie after lie after lie. So many of the world is stuck in rule one. People just going from mortal sin to mortal sin, going on autopilot, not into a place they want to go. And that is how Satan is working on them. And that is how Satan is tricking them into doing that. But that does not mean that God stands idly by. God sees these children and his heart breaks with love for the fact that they've turned away from him. And so what the good spirit does, he does an opposite method. Instead, he pricks them. And as St. Ignatius says so beautifully with such amazing imagery, biting 
at their consciences, biting at their consciences. And biting at their consciences, not just for the heck of it, but through the process of reason. Reminding the person who goes from mortal sin to mortal sin that this is not a good idea. Neither you nor the people around you benefit from this in any way. And this happens all the time. I see it constantly in the confessional. People come in with these mortal sins and they look at me and they, I just got to get my life back in order. That idea is of movement of the Lord in their hearts, of movement of God, pricking at their conscience and biting and reminding them this is not a good idea. That you're destroying yourself. And not just are you destroying yourself, you're destroying everybody else. That's a grace. That is love, if I ever heard of it. An image that I like to think of whenever I think of this rule and I think of the good spirit biting at somebody is a guy running off of a cliff. If you imagine a man running off of a cliff, if you will, Satan is the one encouraging him to go, 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 go faster. It'll be a lot of fun. Look, it'll be like an epic jump. You'll have a blast falling. It'll be amazing. Don't think about what's going to happen once you land, but have a good time falling. It's going to be awesome. And it's like the Lord is there with an arrow trying to shoot the guy down and trying to seriously wound him so he stops running. That's God at work trying to stop us from our inevitable doom whenever we're in this situation. Which is why whenever you read the scriptures, you'll often see that the Lord wounds. He wounds. And it's a little strange. Why is God wounding? You thought God wasn't supposed to hurt us. And the answer is simple. It depends. A surgeon, in a sense, wounds. He wounds us so that he can heal us. That's exactly what God does so often. God will wound our progress to doom so that then we can be healed and move on to our second rule. Our second rule is this. Well, so, wait, so there he is. Rule one, Satan console, Satan kind of whispering sweet nothings and God coming down sternly. In, in St. Augustine's words, stern mercy. That's what the, how the Lord works in rule one. Stern mercy. But... Rule one is not the whole picture. There's a second rule. Not everybody in the world is going from mortal sin to mortal sin. Even though if you watch CNN, you might think that. There is another rule. And this is it. The second. In the persons who are going intensely, cleansing their sins and rising from good to better in service of our God and our Lord it is the method contrary to that first rule. For then, it is the way of the evil spirit to bite, sadden, and put obstacles disquieting with false reasons. False reasons, I like that. That one may not go on, and it is proper to the good to give courage and strength, consolations, tears, inspirations, and quiet easing and putting away all obstacles that one may go on in well-doing. That one may go on in well-doing. It's as if the Lord is encouraging us 
on our way to salvation. And friends, the rule two, rule two is about a person exactly opposite to the person going from mortal sin to mortal sin. This is somebody who through a process of purification is looking to go from good to better. Somebody who's looking to forget his sins, to ignore them, to get them out of his or her life so they might get to heaven. If you will, if rule one was a person going away from God and going to damnation, rule two is a person striving to get closer to God and approaching salvation. And because of that, the roles reverse immediately. And it's a common sense reversal. God wants to draw the person in. And so what's he going to do? He's going to console. He's going to give courage. He's going to give strength. But the enemy, the enemy's going to do something else. He's going to bite. He's going to sadden. Not a healthy sadness, like a loss of a child or a loss of having to move away. or anything. That's healthy sadness. The sadness that St. Ignatius is talking about is more a sadness of despair. A sadness of an idea, I just can't do this. There's no way. I'm in over my head. It's just not possible. And the reason why that sadness is so detrimental is because it is based off of false reasons. Reasons that don't really exist. Reasons that are just completely and totally in our heads. And that's how the enemy works. The enemy is fundamentally a liar. And the way he's going to send us into desolation, at least if the way he's going to try to, is by giving us these false reasons. Notice how in rule one, God consoles with reason. Good reason. This is not a good idea. And here's why. But notice in rule two, the enemy bites with false reasons, with lies. And a huge part of this whole discernment is a matter of recognizing when we're being lied to and when we're being told the truth. It's something very important to look at. When are we, the, the words that we're speaking, the things that we're acting on, when do they make sense and when do they not? That being said, in the process, the Lord gives us consolation. The Lord gives us love and the Lord gives us something that that is appreciated. He gives us confidence. He gives us courage. And He puts away all those obstacles that keep us from progressing to Him. How often do we think about our journey to heaven and we think of all of our failures in the past? Maybe there's this sin of gossip we can't get over. Maybe it's this problem of lust we just cannot seem to shake. Maybe we struggle to stay awake during Mass. May we struggle to even enjoy prayer at all. And think about that and let those dark thoughts swirl and swirl and swirl in our heads. To the point where we can't even see what's going on. That is something that the Lord happily, happily moves away. And that's what the Lord, that's what he's that's what saying that he's just talking about in Rule 2. In Rule 2, in this situation, the Lord is the one to say, have faith in me. You can do all things if you just believe in me. Philippians 4.13 Trust in me and I will lead you. I am your shepherd. You need not want. Psalm 23 Point is, God is there and He's with us. And that's what He's seeking to show us right there in Rule 2. 
whenever we're seeking to grow closer to him, he's there removing those obstacles. Now, at some point, usually, so I learned this with a bunch of other seminarians, and usually whenever we bring this concept up, somebody always protests. And they say, wait, what about Mother Teresa? Mother Teresa was a holy, saintly woman. And yet, there's no way Mother Teresa was not going from good to better and not headed toward God. If she wasn't heading toward God, guys, we might as well just hang it up. We have no shot. We're done. The fact of the matter is, if we read Mother Teresa's journal, you and I will find, and in fact, Time Magazine put this on the, like, the front cover of their, art, of their magazine one time. You're going to find that she was in darkness, darkness, for 40 years. Maybe even 50. I, can't, I never can really remember. 40 to 50 years. Which begs the question that so many of us ask. If Mother Teresa was in darkness, how does that reconcile with Rule 2? Rule 2 which says that only Satan puts on that desolation. Only that Satan kind of drags her down. How does that make sense? And the way Father Timothy Gallagher describes it is that the desolation and the sadness that, that Satan imposes is not the same as what Mother Teresa went through. What Mother Teresa went through in that darkness was a purifying darkness which happened to her in prayer. It was something to seek to actually draw her deeper into the love of the Lord. It's a purifying darkness. Something that happens in prayer. It's, it's, it's as Father Timothy Gallagher describes it, a contemplative experience that comes whenever we're so close to the Lord the Lord seeks to purify us of all of our senses, making all other senses like ash, even the consolation that He gives us. It's something that happens to us whenever we grow deeper and deeper in the spiritual life. And it's something that may have happened to you at some point in your life. Have no fear, that is not necessarily desolation. And we'll go into a little bit deeper of why that is not. So, that being said, we've just looked at the first two rules. The first two rules are all about directionality. Headed to heaven or headed to hell. Drawing closer to God or drawing away from Him. And looking at how based off of where we're going, what category we fit in, the spirits will speak differently to us. If we're headed away, it's the, spirit, the, 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 good, the evil spirit will console us. The good spirit will remind us of what we're doing in a very, uh, very honest way. Whereas the roles reverse. In if we're headed to God, the good spirit consoles and the evil spirit seeks to confuse us and make us sad. But what does this consolation look like? Really and truly, what is the meat of this? And if we want to look at that, we've got to look at rule number three. The third rule. Spiritual consolation. I call it consolation. When some interior movement in the soul is caused through which the soul comes to be inflamed with love of its Creator and Lord. And when it can in consequence love no created thing on the face of the earth in itself, but in the Creator of them all. Likewise, when it sheds tears that move to love of its Lord, whether out of sorrow for one's sins or for the passion of Christ our Lord or because of other things directly connected with His service and praise. Finally, I call consolation 
every increase of hope, faith, and charity. And all inner joy which causes, which calls and attracts to heavenly things and to the salvation of one's soul, quieting it and giving it peace in its Creator and Lord. Quieting it and giving it peace in its Creator and Lord. That's spiritual consolation. Quiet, a quiet soul that's peacefully in love with the Lord. A soul that's inflamed with love of its Creator and Lord to the point where it, in, it can in consequence love no created things on the face of the earth itself, but only the Creator. That is what spiritual consolation is. Now notice what St. Ignatius says. He doesn't just say consolation. He says spiritual consolation. And by that meaning, that cannot mean an ice cream cone or a kind word or a funny joke. That is not a spiritual consolation. That is what you would call a non-spiritual consolation. Something that doesn't directly apply to our spirits. But, but, what Father Timothy Gallagher has said, the foremost theologian on the rules of discernment in America, is that non-spiritual consolation, an ice cream cone, a kind word, a funny joke, somebody, somebody in your family doing something amazing, maybe you doing something amazing, who knows, can often serve as a springboard, a springboard into spiritual consolation. It is not uncommon that non-spiritual consolation can serve as a springboard into spiritual consolation. Whenever I think of this, I think immediately of my ordination. Whenever I was ordained to the priesthood, oh my goodness, I couldn't fly a kite, I was a kite. I was thrilled beyond my wildest beliefs. It was the coolest thing in the world. Now, in a sense, in a sense, getting ordained to the priesthood, it kind of borders, I know, it's like, it's kind of like, it is a spiritual consolation, but at the same time, in many ways, it's a non-spiritual consolation. Because a huge part of my consolation was the love that I was receiving from my community. The gifts, the appreciations, the people coming up to me asking for my blessing. People asking for, for me to come and do Mass for them. The opportunity to even do the Mass. Mind-blowing. I could, I'm, seriously, I was shaking like the first three times I ever did Mass. And after that, I still kind of shake a little bit. But that's neither here nor there. My point being is that that is a non-spiritual consolation. And because of that, my prayer life soared through the roof. Because of that love that I was receiving. It then allowed me and gave me kind of a springboard to leap and grow closer to Jesus, thanking Him for the incredible gift that He gave me in ordaining me a priest. Something I didn't deserve, something I wasn't entitled to, but something the Lord in His mercy looked upon me and gave me. Now granted, that was by far the most profound spiritual consolation I had ever felt in my life. With the exception of maybe the time that I, the 30-day retreat. But the fact of the matter is, those are two short time periods in my life. And the reality is, is that these experiences are not often that profound. 
They're not often that strong. Sometimes they are, in which case, praise God. But the fact of the matter is, these, every single one of these experiences of consolation vary in two ways. They vary in duration and intensity. They vary in duration and intensity. Sometimes consolations can last for a week, two weeks, a month at a time. In my case, it was like five months. It was awesome. But most of the time, but sometimes consolations only last but a few minutes, maybe even just a few hours. The duration varies. In, in either case, in whichever case, praise God for what you've received. Consolation is not earned. It's not anything that you and I worked in, like, you know, said like 15 Hail Marys, and so we got like five minutes of consolation. Woohoo. It's not a it's not a, a consolation stock exchange going on in heaven. Consolations are a pure gift. A pure gift. Now we can put ourselves in a place where we can be consoled, but for the most part, it's all by the grace of God. That being said, even though they vary in duration, they also vary in another thing. Intensity. Sometimes a consolation might be just a low burning flame in our hearts. Nothing that big, but something that's there nonetheless. Other times, a consolation, kind of like what I experienced after ordination, could be a bonfire, something massive, something that just is absolutely mind-blowing. Either way, they're both consolation. They're both a sign that God's leading you closer to Him, and they're both something that we can look at God and say thank you. By the way, these consolations are not extraordinary. These consolations are not just for those of, not just for people who get ordained. I'm sure for many of you who are married, you experience consolation like this similar to your wedding day or after, after that, the honeymoon period, as they call. There's other consolations where you may feel that after coming after, from a retreat, or maybe praying a rosary, or maybe doing things like that. We experience these all the time. It's not something that happened just once in our lives, and that's that we're just kind of desolate. This is a constant work because, con because God is constantly working on us. But alas, that's not the only thing we experience, if we're really honest. Consolation is one form of spiritual movement. But as we mentioned earlier, there is another being at work. That being, as we said, is Satan. And what he seeks to throw on us is desolation. Before I get further with this, before I go into the fourth rule, I realize I missed a crucial part. These rules of discernment, 3 to 14, only apply to those in rule 2. Those who are moving closer to God. If we're moving away from God, desolation, people would call desolation honestly God's work in movement. It wouldn't be, it would, it's, that's not an accurate term for the sadness that you feel going away from God. The sadness that you feel going away from God actually is probably God himself. But because, but these rules are all about those of us looking to make that journey, looking to grow closer to Him, looking to really experience Him, looking to actually get to heaven, not by the skin of our teeth, but actually like graciously and fully by God's grace and mercy. So that being said, let's go to the fourth rule. Of spiritual desolation. I call desolation all the contrary of the third rule, such as darkness of soul, Disturbance in it, movement to things low and earthly, the unquiet of different agitations and temptations, moving to want of confidence, without hope, without love, 
when one finds oneself all lazy, tepid, and sad, as if separated from his Creator and Lord, be as consolation is contrary to desolation, in the same way, the thoughts which come from consolation are contrary to the thoughts which come from desolation. The thoughts which come from consolation are contrary to the thoughts which come from desolation. Rule four, spiritual desolation. Another way, if, if we look at spiritual consolation and we call it joyful, we can look at spiritual desolation and call it sad. Once again, whenever we're talking about spiritual desolation, we have to make a very important distinction. St. Ignatius is not talking about desolation. He's talking about a spiritual desolation, which means that he's not talking about bodily tiredness or psychological depression or just generally some frustrating thing that happens in our life, some frustrating thing that happened to us, like a reaction to somebody stealing something very valuable to us. No, instead he's talking about something spiritual, something that goes a lot deeper. But as he mentions, and as Father Gallagher is very astutely observes, non-spiritual desolation, that is bodily tiredness, depression, anger, this stuff can be a springboard to spiritual desolation, to agitation, to temptation, to lack of confidence, to being without hope, without love, and being lazy, tepid, and sad. That can easily come to us if we do not take care of our bodies, and if we do not take care of our minds. We can easily provide the devil with a springboard into a deeper sense of desolation. Something you and I have to be aware of whenever we're talking about this. So whenever I'm talking about spiritual desolation, I'm not talking about a major psychological issue that needs to be treated with medication. It very much can be valid, and I'm in no way under, undercutting that. But I'm acknowledging that there's a deeper desolation at work in our hearts besides mere psychology, and that is our spirituality. Now, one way that St. Ignatius defines this desolation is this. I kind of like it. He calls it a, con a condition of affective heaviness. That's kind of like a heaviness of feeling that instills within us sadness and depletes our energy for living the joyful life that God is calling us to live us. It's an effective heaviness. It's kind of like sadness, like a burden on our backs, a burden on our hearts. And it's still sadness and depletes energy for living. Now, there's another part of desolation that I want to point out, which makes, which, which allows me to kind of hopefully show how Mother Teresa wasn't going through desolation. It's not like Satan was just like poking at Mother Teresa like she was like another Job in the Bible. No, the reason why I say that is because of this. There's a very key line in here that I cannot ever imagine Mother Teresa struggling with. At least that's not what she writes in her journal. And it's this. Desolation is all contrary to, of the third rule, such as darkness of soul, disturbance in it, and this. Movement to things low and earthly. Movement to low and earthly things. We all know what that's like, I think. How many of y'all gave up sweets for Lent? And how many of y'all have eaten sweets at this point? You can thank Satan for that one. That was desolation. 
moving us to low and earthly things, moving us to be consoled to those temptations of the flesh, those desires. That's basically what, what Jesus is talking about. That's what St. Ignatius is talking about whenever he mentions this. And yet, if we look at the life of Mother Teresa, I don't think any sweet on this earth could tempt Mother Teresa. I mean, that woman was an, a rock-iron fist against that stuff. She was made of, she had an iron will. Which is why I think that you can make a very good case that what Mother Teresa was going through, it's not an act of desolation, but as St. John of the Cross calls it, a dark night of the soul. God purifying us of her senses and even that sense of consolation. Something very deep, something that I don't encourage you to exactly go looking for because Mother Teresa seems to really struggle through that one. So, Basically, the point is, desolation is a direct influence from the devil. And the reality is, unless you and I do something about it, whenever it strikes, we are going to be left just as miserable. Desolation is a seeking from, the, from Satan to pull us down and drag us away from God. Which means, unless we fight that, we're going down. We're going to be in deep, deep trouble. And that's the thing about Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, in a sense, surrendered to the dark nights and she was made holier to that. Holier because of that. Do not ever, under any circumstances, surrender to desolation. Desolation is not something to be sat upon. It's not something that we just throw our hands up in the air and say, ah, you know what, whatever, I'm just feeling like this today. Nothing I can really do about it. I'm just going to go sit in my sackcloth and my ashes and cry. That's not right. And that can lead us far, far away from what God wants to do in us. And that is basically the four, the four rules. The first rule we have, our, the first two rules are all about directionality. And the second two rules are all about what we're talking about exactly. Consolation and desolation. That is the Lord moving in our hearts, moving in a deeper way, moving in love. And desolation, that is Satan trying to drag us away from the Lord. That being said, that just about wraps it up. We're about to go into adoration. So I want to give you a few questions to reflect on during adoration, during the silence. What I want you to do, it's not really a question, it's more of a challenge. What I want you to do is I want you to go back and look at your life. Maybe you can go back and look at today, who knows? If you, if you really got this down, you, you can do this maybe even just today. But at least look at your life. And I want you to come up with those instances where the Lord has fed you with spiritual consolation. Where you really felt the divine presence of God in your life. Where you really felt consoled, like He was there, comforting you, loving you, and leading you to greatness giving you confidence, giving you courage, and giving you the ability not to be afraid of any obstacles or anything that Satan puts in front of you. Go back and think about those times and pray with God through those times, thanking Him for all that He's given you in that way. But the other thing I'd like you to think about is go back to those times of desolation and see what lie did you believe led you to that desolation? What was behind the desolation that you did experience? What was behind the sadness? 
How is Satan trying to trick you and deceive you into believing that you can't do this? That you can't get to heaven? That you can't grow closer to God? That you're stuck in these sins that you commit over and over and over again? And take the opportunity in front of the blessed sacrament to dispel those lies. To ask Jesus into your life and to allow Him to remind you that that simply is not true. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that He is accompanying you and I to His eternal kingdom. And so my friends, allow 